You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Hey friends, welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and sexual expression by challenging those puritanical backward ass ideals in the US. This is episode 74 of American Sex Podcast. I'm Sunny Megatron and my co-host is Ken Melvoin Berg. We're sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, we're married so we bicker a lot and we're of course kinky pervs just like you. So American fuckers, if you remember my intro last week, I was like, oh yeah, this is my last intro. I'm recording from Chicago. Well, I kind of lied, like not on purpose. It just, I meant it, but then it didn't happen. You see here in podcasting, there really is no space time continuum. You know, it feels like next week to you, January 28th, but really it's not. It's the day after I recorded last week's intro. But yeah, through the magic of podcasting, but I'm still in Chicago. And next week then, and and seriously, because I'm flying out tomorrow, next week will be our very first intro, actually entire podcast recorded in Las Vegas. Ken will be back too. I know you really miss him, but don't worry, you will hear him in this episode's guest conversation. So just hang tight for a couple of minutes. Now, I tell you every week that I am super duper excited about our guest, and I really am, but I'm telling you, I totally fangirled out during this conversation. This week's guest is Dr. Justin Laymiller, and he's talking to us about his new book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire, and how it can help you improve your sex life. So I've been following Dr. Laymiller for years, and I absolutely love everything that he writes, that he posts. You'll see me on Twitter reposting his stuff quite a bit. So if you're not familiar with him, though, well, one, you're not really following me too closely on Twitter because I retweet him all the time. But two, you should be familiar with him. So here's a little bit more about Dr. Justin Laymiller. Dr. Laymiller received his PhD in social psychology from Purdue University, and he's a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book we're talking about today, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Dr. Laymiller is an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard University, where he also taught for several years. He is also a prolific researcher and scholar who's published more than 40 pieces of academic writing to date, including a textbook titled The Psychology of Human Sexuality that's used in college classrooms around the world. Dr. Laymiller's research focuses on topics including casual sex, sexual fantasy, sexual health, friends with benefits, etc. His studies have appeared in all of the leading journals on human sexuality. Like he, his stuff, Awesome. Just wait. There's more. You're going to love this. Ah, I can't wait for you to hear it. So Dr. Laymiller also runs the popular blog, Sex and Psychology. He's been doing that since 2011. And he's interviewed all the time by bunches of media outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and, you know, the Atlantic. He's also appeared on several episodes of the television program Taboo on National Geographic and writes columns for publications like Playboy, Vice, Psychology Today, New York Magazine, etc., 
Okay, really? Seriously? This interview might just change your life, especially if you've ever thought to yourself that any of your sexual fantasies or fetishes are kind of a little weird and maybe not everyone would understand, especially your partner or potential future partners. This is going to save you. I'm telling you. Dr. Lay Miller surveyed over 4,000 Americans about their fantasies and fetishes, and the conclusions that he extrapolated from this data are absolutely fascinating and completely reassuring. Dr. Lay Miller discovered that all of our sexual fantasies, even though they seem like varied and different, and there's so many, there must be millions and thousands, they actually fall into only seven categories. He tells us which are the most popular of those categories and why. Uh, If men and women fantasize differently, why suppressing our sexual fantasies can be very, very damaging. And you should not do that. Well, at least to some of them. Well, we'll get into it in the interview. You got to hear it. Uh, He talks about why group sex is so damn appealing. Raise your hand if you've ever fantasized about it. All the hands around the world go up. He also talks about why Republicans tend to have more taboo sexual fantasies. And he even tells us a few exclusive things from his study that actually didn't make it into his book. So get ready for a bunch of sex and a whole lot of science. American fuckers, you are going to love this conversation. And hey, real quick, before we get to the interview, I just want to tell you that if you like this little thing, you know, that we've got going on, you and me, and can, you know, according to Dr. Justin Miller, a lot of Americans fantasize about groups, you know, just saying groups, maybe group podcasting. So if you like what we've going on, and you want it to continue, like I do, there's one thing I want to ask of you, you know, how social media is shutting down accounts having anything to do with sexual health. One day, you might look us up on Facebook to see what new episodes going on, and we might be gone. And you know what? It's it's not you, and it's even not us. It's Facebook and social media and internet censorship. So to make sure that we never lose touch, go ahead and sign up for our mailing list. You can do it now by pulling out your phone and texting the word Megatron to the number 444-999 or by visiting the web address sunnymegatron.com slash newsletter. All right, American fuckers, get your brains ready because they are about to be blown, especially if you are a sex and science data geek like I am. Here is Dr. Justin Miller. Okay, I am geeking out and I'm having a fangirl moment because we have on the line this week, Dr. Justin Miller, whose work I have been following for years, who I find absolutely brilliant, and I'm like totally excited. So hi, Dr. Miller. Hi, Sunny. I'm happy to talk to you finally. <laughs> yes, I know. it's It's been a long time coming that we connect. Um, I have been diving into your new book, Tell Me What You Want, which is absolutely fascinating. And we're going to be talking about it this, this whole hour. Um, and Ken and I work with a lot of people, you know, we, we tend to focus on uh, fetish and kink and BDSM. And a lot of times when we talk to people, they have a real discomfort about their sexual fantasies or fetishes. They think, you know, something's wrong with me. Why do I like this? It's just really troubling. So a lot of the work we do, especially with one-on-one or with couples is 
like letting people know it's okay. Like you're not weird. We all have our things that are quote weird, which really makes none of us quote weird. But you now have given us the science to back that up. And a lot of people are science geeks. So when they hear like, you've done this survey of 4,000 people and you've got the numbers and you've analyzed everything, this is great. So wait, Sonny, I have to, this- Sonny, I have to interrupt yeah. for just one second. Uh, for all yeah. of our fans out there, uh, Dr. Lay Miller is about one third of the things that I repost on Facebook. So if you're <laughs> yes. seeing anything yeah. about <laughs> sex, science and that sort of thing, that's literally about a third of my Facebook reposts. So thank you for that, yeah. Justin. Thank you. Yes. Sure. You're a very prolific writer. So tell me about the, the survey that you conducted that you based the data on in your book. Sure. So I surveyed 4,175 Americans about their sexual fantasies. And I spent almost two years conducting this survey because it's kind of hard to get grant funding or money to, to do large scale sex studies, especially if you want to study anything other than STDs. If you want to study the, the positive side of sex or sexual fantasies or sexual pleasure, they're just really isn't money to be able to do that. So I was relying on volunteer participants to fill out this massive survey that consisted of 369 questions about people's biggest sexual fantasies of all time, as well as hundreds of people, places, and things that they might have fantasized about. And I wanted to look at how all of that was connected to people's personalities, their sexual histories, their demographic backgrounds, and and really just take this comprehensive look at sexual fantasies in a way that had never previously been done before. And then I wrote this whole book that's based around this survey, but that also brings in a lot of other relevant science and research from different fields just to give us this really interesting, unique look at sexual fantasies today and what they say about us. So what are some of the other disciplines that you brought into the study? So I brought in a lot of research that's based in uh, psychology, of course, because my background and training is in social psychology, but there's also some neuroscience research that's tied in there. Uh, there's some uh, evolutionary biology that's tied in there as well. Uh, so, so it's really an interdisciplinary book in some ways. And I, that's really kind of how the field of human sexuality research works is that it's not primarily based in any one discipline. Uh, we bring people from from all different areas in. And I think that makes our conferences really, really exciting because you're hearing from people who have training in these very diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So down to basics, what actually is a sexual fantasy and why do we have them? So a sexual fantasy is any mental thought or image that is sexually arousing to you. So this obviously is going to vary a lot from one person to the next, but uh, it's just sort of something that you bring to mind that turns you on. And maybe you start to get some genital arousal that goes along with it. But basically, it's just this thought that turns you on. And people have sexual fantasies for a wide range of reasons. I asked people as part of the survey why they had sexual fantasies. And of course, not surprisingly, the single most commonly reported reason was because they wanted to experience sexual arousal or increase or enhance sexual arousal. Mm -hmm. But people also fantasize because they just want to escape reality or, you know, they're looking for a distraction. Sometimes they do it because they're bored. Uh, Sometimes they do it for, uh, you know, because it helps them to fall asleep. You know, there's, there's any number of reasons that people might have sexual fantasies, but most of the time we do it, it's because we want to feel arousal. Hmm. So 
one thing that I have heard, you know, whether it's in pop magazine, you know, uh, sex articles or either friends, neighbors, people talking about sex is there's this notion that men and women operate very differently when it comes to their sexuality and their sexual fantasies. What did you find along those lines in your research? Is it is that as true as we all say it is? So, you know, you're right in thinking that a lot of what is perpetuated in the popular media about men and women and sex is that men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But what I see in my research is that men and women actually have a lot in common when it comes to their sexual fantasies, and that most of the things that men are fantasizing about are the same things that women are fantasizing about, and and vice versa. Certainly, there are some differences, and I do spend a bit of time in the book acknowledging what those differences are and why they're important, but we're more similar than we are different when it comes to Mm -hmm. our our sexual turn-ons and fantasies. Now, there's one thing that I've noticed, and this is purely anecdotal. Okay. So as I said, Ken and I mainly deal with people who are into BDSM and fetishism and that sort of thing. And one anecdotal thing that I have noticed, and both Ken and I have noticed, is that when it comes to men's fantasies, they're very particular. Like, I I am visualizing a blonde woman in the northeast corner of the room wearing a red jacket, sitting with one elbow like this. And, you know, it's a very, their fantasies seem to be very, very particular and sometimes very like individual to the point of like, that's weird. Where did that come from? Um, where I don't tend to see those, those very specific details in women. So in your research, did you find anything that actually backed this up? And if so, or if not, why? So I found in my work that men and women were specific and particular in their fantasies in somewhat different ways. So for example, for Ben, they were much more likely to have a, a very specific person in mind and to say that that person was the, 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 a big source of their arousal in their sexual fantasies. Uh, by contrast, women were less likely to have a, a specific person in mind. So when I asked people if they'd ever fantasized about a vague, faceless person, women are much more likely than men to to say they've had that fantasy. That's so every per- one of my fantasies. Like, it yeah, doesn't so, matter who it is. Yeah. So the, the particulars of the person don't matter quite as much to women as they do to men. Um However, one area where women were a little more particular than men was when it came to the setting in which their fantasy took place. So women were more likely to say that the specific setting in which they were having sex was a source of arousal to them. Um, so so I, I think we're particular in somewhat different ways. Interesting. You know what I, okay. yeah, I think I understand that. Cause like when I have a fantasy, it's something like getting a rusty trombone while I'm wearing a unicorn mask and I could give a fuck about where we're actually at while the whole <laughs> thing is happening. Now I have very particular and very either disgusting or humorous details that have to be added to that. But the, what about you, Sonny? Uh, does, does the setting make a difference? No, mine are very, mine are very much like a vibe. You know, it doesn't really matter who I'm with. Um, where I am, maybe a little bit, you know, it doesn't have to be specific, like in a certain hotel in France or, you know, not like that, but like on a bed, um, on the, um, I did. Have what about your construction? About, what about your construction? I was going to say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Construction, <laughs> construction workers. And I am in like the, the, the 
digger part, like the bed of the digger, like the big shovel part. And these construction workers are all taking me at once. And they're all, they got dirty hands and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, location in that respect. But I, I don't know what the construction workers look like. They're just construction workers. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think, Sunny, what you said there about the vibe being yeah. really important to you speaks to, maybe it's not the setting, it's just the context in which this is taking place, where, yeah. you know, that seems to be a bit more important to women. And, and I should clarify that everything we're talking about here is, is based on average differences right. and there's wide individual variability and you know there are you know some men who don't care at all about who their other partner is and and some women who don't care at all about the setting so you know these are just average differences and a lot of individual variability one thing i find really interesting is when i was reading your book and you were talking about the data you, you know you were giving a caveat saying well yes a lot of this was done online so your your sample group tended to skew a little bit younger a little bit more liberal a little bit more tech savvy more, um, you know, educated, higher income, that sort of thing. Um, however, there is one thing that you did say that, again, we have very much noticed anecdotally, is that when you look at the uh, political stance of the person, whether someone is more liberal or someone is more conservative, that people that are more conservative uh, politically tend to have, I don't know, maybe more out their fantasies or that they've suppressed their fantasies so much that they like suddenly come to the surface like a volcano. Can you expand mm -hmm. a little bit more on that? Sure. So I found that people who were self-identified Republicans, and, and I should say that there were hundreds of them in the sample. Yes, the sample overall skewed more liberal than uh, you know, compared to nationally representative samples, but I still had a lot of Republicans and conservatives um, and, and religiously identified people in the sample as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the self-identified Republicans had more basically just taboo fantasies overall and more fantasies about infidelity and swinging and uh, cuckolding and, uh, you know, lots and lots of these different fantasies that there are things that if you're a Republican or a conservative, you'd be told that you shouldn't be doing those things. You shouldn't be into those things. And I think something you said about suppressing the thoughts is, is part of what explains why they report having more of these fantasies. When you're someone who has a lot of restrictions placed on your sexuality, one common way that people deal with that is to try and suppress their sex-related thoughts. But we know from psychological research that that actually has the ironic effect of making you think about them even more. It creates this, this sort of obsessive preoccupation. And I think that that's sort of what helps to explain why we're seeing more of the taboo fantasies among the self-identified conservatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that is definitely something that I think all of us knew but us science geeks are like, aha, uh -huh, now we got some data to back that up. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really interesting that even though uh, fantasies and, and fetishes and sexual interests can be so diverse, like I met somebody once um, whose turn on was chairs. And not like in a sex way, not like I want the chair to penetrate me, but just like the look and the vibe and the the personality of the chair was a turn on kind of thing. And I was like, wow, that's one I've never like, it's fascinating. Never heard of that. Um, so when you think about fantasies, it's like, oh, there must be 80 gazillion billion different fantasies. But you actually categorize them into seven basic types of fantasies that pretty much all of us 
had. And the number one one, which I, I find interesting, but I also am like, duh, because that's most of my fantasies, is group sex. So tell me about group sex and how, the amount of commonality you found amongst people in that. So group sex is one of those activities where it can take a lot of different forms. You know, obviously there's the the threesome and then you can the construction worker or, scenario. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, you know, the construction worker gangbang, you know, the, uh, you know, full-fledged orgy sex party, like there are all kinds of ways that this can play out. Um, but what I found was that when I asked people if they had ever fantasized about threesomes, orgies, gangbangs, uh, the vast majority, both men and women reported having those fantasies and group sex. And in particular threesomes was the single most common theme that I saw when I looked at people's favorite fantasies of all time. Uh, and so it was less than 10% of of women and men who reported having ever had group sex fantasies. So so we're talking about something that is just ubiquitous in uh, the the population, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, and and so forth. Why? What's so appealing <laughs> about it? So I think there are a few contributing factors. One is just sort of the novelty angle or aspect of it. You know, when you have an extra body or several other bodies in there, it gives you all kinds of other things to look at and touch and feel and experience in this way that can be very overpowering. And I think that that's ultimately what a lot of people are seeking when they're thinking about group sex is they want this sort of state of sensory overload where they can just get lost in the moment and enjoy all of these sensations. Uh, so I think that's also part of the reason why when most people are fantasizing about a threesome, they're often more often than not fantasizing about being the center of attention, right? They, they want multiple partners to, 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 uh, want them and that they can experience at the same time. And it's, it's psychologically validating for us on the one hand, right? Because we mm -hmm. want to feel wanted. And when you've got multiple people doing that, that, that can be really stimulating, but it also just creates that visual and other sensory overload that we're after as well. Ooh. Yeah. And I, I would say that's me. I'm selfish. I'm like, I just want to lay there and I want everything to happen. <laughs> and I also wish that the people were mind readers. That's in my fantasy. Like they knew exactly right. what I wanted. And that actually will never happen. But you know, the rest of it might. <laughs> Sweetheart, that explains a lot. It does. Why? And why does it explain a lot with you? Because yeah. it just it's, a, it's reflective of how you are in real life. Oh, I'm a Leo in bed. Yes. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> and I'm so, sorry, what were you saying, Justin? Oh, go ahead, Justin. Oh, I, I, I was going to say, I think that, you know, what people want from a group sex scenario depends to some extent on their personality. You know, I saw that some people in their, say, threesome fantasies did not want to be the center of attention. And, uh, for example, some people said, I want my partner to be the center of attention. So I'm, I'm thinking of this woman who had a, a bisexual male partner and she said she wants to have a threesome with another man where her male partner is the center of attention and where he gets to enjoy both a male and a female partner at the same time. And she really would take great enjoyment and pleasure in seeing her partner's pleasure in that scenario. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of variability here as usual. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. And what were you saying, Ken? Oh, um, the I, I had sort of a question that might be outside of your bailiwick, Justin, but I didn't know if you had ever done or have included people with intellectual disability like uh, Down syndrome for any of the surveys that you have taken about sexuality. 
So do you mean as participants? Yeah, in yeah, the as survey? participants in the study. So that I don't, I, I did not specifically ask people about questions that would uh, get at that. So, so I can't talk about, say, what their fantasies might be compared to, say, uh, other individuals. That just wasn't something that I had looked at specifically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So another big broad of your seven categories is, and this, of course, is one that piques my interest, is power, control, and rough sex. So what intricacies did you learn about what people want when it comes to those things? Because I think, to me, that's a big one, or maybe it's just because it's the center of my world. Um, Mm -hmm. So tell me more about that. So that's another hugely popular fantasy theme, right? Where it's 90% or more of of men and women who are saying that they're having fantasies about power control and and rough sex. And and this is really where all of the BDSM stuff comes in. And uh, this can take so many different forms. You know, for Mm -hmm. some people, they just want uh, very basic bondage. You know, they want the sensation of just being tied up or they want to tie up their partner. And that is enough for them to, to kind of give them that 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 sense of power and control or loss of power and control that that turns them on uh other people prefer to engage in more intense activities where maybe there's um some spanking or maybe there's use of, of whips or flogs or or other tools and implements you know it really runs the gamut from mild to wild but it's all about sort of playing with power and control and sometimes with with pain and pleasure uh mixed in there uh there was also a lot of uh fantasies about humiliation that i saw where people are turned on by um, humiliating a partner or being humiliated themselves. It was actually more common for people to want to be humiliated and to want to receive pain physically or psychologically than to want to inflict pain on others. So, um, you know, masochism is a much more common uh, sexual fantasy than sadism is. Right. Any theories on why uh, masochism is so popular, whether it's, you know, verbal or physical? I think a big part of the appeal of masochism is what the experience of pain does to us psychologically. And when you're experiencing pain, it has the effect of bringing you into the here and now. It creates this state of mindfulness. And it's... uh that can really help to take you out of your head. And if you're someone who is, say, easily distracted during sex, or you have a lot of maybe, say, personal insecurities or anxieties, masochism uh, is an activity that can help to just provide the distraction that you need to really get lost and enjoy sexual activity in that moment. So I think for for both men and women, a big part of the appeal is just that change in your state of mind that allows you to focus on the physical sensations rather than getting lost in your head. So, all right, this makes me think of, you know, some of the reasons that I like BDSM and when you say a turn on. And when I think about what's a turn on for me, especially in a BDSM sense, it isn't necessarily anything that involves like tingly genitals. It's more of a mental, you know, I get off on the power. So when you say, like, as you said a few times, you know, whatever turns you on, how do you define a turn on? What is it exactly? It's something that for you creates this state of arousal. And that's something that is both psychological and physical. And it's individual and unique to you. Um, Our turn-ons are this complex product of our individual psychology, our personality, our 
unique sexual experiences we've had until this point. They're also a product and reflection of the culture in which we find ourselves embedded. They're a product of our evolutionary history. And so all of these things come together to, to create this sort of unique set of turn-ons from one person to the next. There's a lot of commonality in the sort of general themes, the kinds of things that turn us on, but we find these really unique ways to express them. And that's why it might seem like people's fantasies are all so totally different. But if you sort of look at the underlying theme behind them, you can see that there's there's actually a lot of commonality in what turns us on. Mm. So is a, a person who gets turned on, you know, their turn-ons make their the psychological part of themselves light up and tingle and that's it just psychological is that kind of turn on just as valid or just as sexual as more of a physical manifestation of a turn on well i think it's hard to separate out the physical and and the psychological here they're they're so intimately intertwined um i i know that you can for example experience a, a physical genital arousal, but not psychologically feel turned on. But more often than not, those things tend to go together. So uh, it, it can be really hard when we're kind of trying to do research in this area to separate out uh, those those two different things. Right, right. Okay. So one of the seven things that I personally find fascinating is uh, the category that's erotic flexibility, specifically homoeroticism and gender bending. And when I think of those things, I tend to think of, you know, your stereotypical cis hetero man who is a cross-dresser. And I know that's a huge category of fetishism and a lot of people have those fantasies. So can you tell me about, you know, what's behind that? What's that all about? Because a lot of people are into it. And a lot of people keep it secret, too. They're really embarrassed about it. And, you know, it might go back to some of the stuff we were talking about a little earlier about having those restrictions placed on you. And I I think for, for men, cisgender, heterosexual men, they have so many restrictions placed on them in terms of how they can act or how they should act. Uh, and, and a lot of them are trying to uphold these ideals for what a man should be and what a man should be turned on by, uh, and what a man should do. So I think a a big part of the cross-dressing, um, and, and just gender bending fantasies that come out are just sort of a way of rebelling against and breaking free of all those restrictions that they have placed on their sexuality. We also know that, um, you know, when, when something becomes a taboo, it has this tendency to become a turn on because the more we're told we can't do something, the more we, we come to want to do it. So that might be part of what is explaining the appeal here. Mm, yeah. I've, I've frequently said like it's a way for, men to work out what society has placed on them, you know, with the toxic masculinity and the patriarchy and kind of the negative effects all of that has had on men and how they're trying to work that out emotionally. So, yeah. And this is a way for them to really just sort of to, to break free and to, to shed some of the burden that's placed on them for having to, to always be the initiators of sex and for them to, you know, just uphold this very rigid, narrow sexual role, uh, breaking free from that can be very cathartic for them. Mm-hmm. And so the study you did, was it only Americans like, or was it worldwide? 
So in the survey that I report in the book of about almost 4,200 people, that consisted of people who were citizens or residents of the United States, because I wanted to look at the, the unique role that American culture might play in shaping our sexual fantasies. So for example, who are the celebrities we, we tend to fantasize about most often? And what does that say about us? Who are they? Culture? And what does that say about us? Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so for uh, for heterosexually identified men, uh, the the celebrity they fantasized about most often was Scarlett Johansson, um, and for heterosexually identified women, the the most fantasized about celebrity was Channing Tatum. Um, I found that when you started looking at lesbian and bi women and gay and bisexual men, they were reporting fairly similar uh, celebrities that they were interested in uh, to. Uh, they were very similar to the ones reported by heterosexuals, just a somewhat different ordering uh, placed among them. Interesting. When you took a look at the different regions of the United States, did you notice any differences? So I didn't really get into that in the book, but I did do a follow-up analysis where I sort of looked at red states and blue states and whether sexual fantasies might differ based on the sort of political leanings of the state. And I found that there there were indeed some some differences. And one that I can remember off the top of my head is that in bluer states, I found that there were more interracial fantasies. So, uh, so in more politically liberal states, people were more open to fantasizing about a partner of a different race than them, which suggests that, you know, sort of the culture in which we're embedded, you know, at the state level and, and in terms of race relations there, that might have an impact in terms of the, the types of people that we find attractive and, and how that plays out in our sexual fantasies, which I think is really interesting and uh, calls for a need for more research cross-culturally on, on sexual fantasies. And to go back to one other thing I forgot to mention earlier. Um, so in the survey in the book, I focused on U.S. participants, but I did collect international data. And that's something that I want to explore in the future. I just haven't had a chance to look into it yet. Ooh, Ooh and, awesome. and that's what I, I was curious about is, you know, uh, until that sentence you just told me, I didn't think you had any research on worldwide stuff. Um, but even stuff that, y- that you've heard, maybe other studies, I know there aren't really many, but is there anything that you can look at the research that you did and say, you know what, this thing, that thing, and this thing seem to be uniquely American or uniquely influenced by American culture, where we don't see those things in the rest of the world? Well, that's a tough question to answer because almost all of the research on sexual fantasies comes from the United States or it comes from another Western culture like the UK. And so it, it's, you know, when you're talking about samples that, as, that, that are weird, you know, us as psychologists call them weird with, with weird being an acronym that stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, right? Um, <laughs> you know, we see that. You know, there's a lot of commonality there. Where we need to move into doing sexual fantasy research is in uh, countries that are on the other side of the globe where uh, they have a very different cultural environment and attitude towards sex. And that would allow us to answer, you know, sort of what are the kind of uniquely Western uh, types of fantasies versus those that we see in other parts of the world. And I just, we don't really have the data to do that yet. Right. Do you think we ever will or like, because I, like you said, nobody wants to fund research that's based on pleasure. So do right. you realistically see this ever happening or we're just kind of SOL? Well, the other thing that's, 
difficult when it comes to collecting this data is in, in some of these other cultures, attitudes towards sex are so repressive that it's almost impossible to even conduct sexuality right. research there. So that's right. another obstacle to collecting the broad, you know, international data sets that would allow us to, to answer these questions. There are mm -hmm. just so many obstacles to doing the sex research that we want and need to be done. Hey, psst, did you know American Sex Podcast has a Patreon page? Becoming a Patreon member is a great way to show your support for this podcast. It works kind of like, I don't know, funding for national public radio or how PBS works. If you appreciate our work and the fact that we provide it to the world free of charge, then you can help support it. And as a member of our Patreon family, you'll be eligible for nifty, cool rewards like bonus episodes, surprises in the mail, and more. Oh, and you'll get all of our episodes early, bonus stories from guests, and access to our private Patreon feed. So you thinking about it? You want to know more? Check out all the details at patreon.com slash americansex. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash American sex. Yeah, I know there was a, a book a, a few years back and the name is escaping me right now, but basically to do their research, they looked at Google searches because it's mm -hmm. like we, we not only lie on surveys, but a lot of times we lie to ourselves about what we're really fantasizing about. But when we sit down at those porn sites and we're Googling like gangbang porn with construction <laughs> workers, like that's no lie. Like, <laughs> that's the truth. So I wonder if somewhere, I don't know, that can help us maybe i don't know yeah and the the book you're referring to is a billion wicked thoughts and thank you it, I, I was like I, it's on the tip of my tongue and i couldn't remember it yes that's it yeah it's it's one of those go-to books that i reference yes. frequently when i'm you know blogging or when i was writing my own book um the one problem though with analyzing the Google searches, if, if you want to look at other countries to see how they might be different oh, is that not all countries have yeah. the open internet that we do and so you know it, it's it's hard to make the direct comparison there for that reason damn one day we'll figure it out we're smart people we'll figure it out all right so you did all this great research and i i highly highly recommend our listeners do pick up your book tell me what you want to to learn about you know what makes all of us tick and what makes you their listener listening tick but now that we have all this information, let's say, you know, we've all read the book and we all understand the research and we understand the big picture. Now let's take it to a micro level to the bedroom when you're sitting face to face with your partner, because we're all comfortable or we're all more comfortable having sex than we are actually talking about it to our partners mm -hmm. and understanding our partner's fantasies. Um, so how do we make the research you've done translate into usable information that we can take to our partners in the bedroom? I, I think there's a couple of takeaways here. One is that you're probably a lot more normal than you think you are. And I think that's where my book can really help people is to, to make them feel more normal. And it, that will help to start breaking down the barriers to having 
conversations about sexual fantasies and desires with your partner. Cause you need to feel good about yourself first before you can put yourself in that position of vulnerability where you're sharing your deepest sexual fantasies. So uh, my advice is to always start first by, you know, getting good with yourself before you start sharing those fantasies with a partner. Um, the other thing we can take away from this research is that I looked at what people's experiences were like when they shared their fantasies with the partner and further what their experiences were like when they acted on them. And so that finally gives us a, a reference point for, you know, how things tend to turn out. We really haven't had any data on this. Surprisingly, there's been a lot of research on sexual fantasies, but none of it has really looked at the link between fantasy and reality. So I wanted to look at how do things play out? And does it depend on the type of fantasy and the type of person? And then there are takeaways from that for you uh, at the individual level in terms of, you know, what types of fantasies might turn out better than others. And based on your own personality and your partner's personality, like where you might be a good match. And, and there's a bit in the book uh, of detail that I go into in that area. Should though we act on all of our fantasies? Are there some fantasies that are better left in our heads? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And how do we know which ones those are? And so that's where the, you know, safe, sane, consensual uh, saying comes into play, right? So if your fantasy is about something that really is non-consensual, you know, we're not talking about the consensual non-consent or forced sex fantasies that, that people have. We're talking about something that is truly non-consensual. That's something that would never be a candidate for, for acting on. Uh, and if your preferred fantasy was something that is non-consensual and you find that you're always thinking about it and it's your go-to fantasy, then that's something that you might want to speak to a professional about in terms of getting help managing that desire so that you don't commit a sex crime and uh, <laughs> hurt someone else. So, you know, so assuming your fantasy. Justin, I have to stop you for just a second. I, Sonny and I are involved with so much weird kinky stuff. Define are you sa- going to talk about serial killers? No, 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 no. I, I, wanted okay. to, I want him to define sane for me. What is sane? Oh, and that's a term that I hate to define because it, it's subjective. You know, what is safe? What is sane? Um, different people have different thresholds of, of risk that they're willing to take on. And, you know, what might seem safe and sane to one person might be very different from another. So I'm hesitant to, to try and put specific limits on it because I know that different people are just open to different experiences and different people have different thresholds for pain and, and so forth. So, you know, that's one of those sort of nebulous terms. Uh, yeah. and, and I think you kind of have to decide that for yourself. Yeah. And quick, quick little interjection, learning moment for the listeners. Um, and that's why Ken and I prefer not to use the safe, sane and consensual, even though that's kind of the go-to mm-hmm. oh, thank you, of BDSM. We use sure. RAC, which is risk aware consensual kink, because then it kind of mm-hmm. takes out that, yeah, what is sane? That's super subjective. You know, the it could be something simple to another person isn't saying and it is to me. So yeah, we'll take like, away like there. doing temporary uh, piercings in a labia or something like that might be great for one person, but awful for the next. So I think that exactly. the risk aware. Like, are yeah, you out of your key. mind? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. All right. And I, I, I really like that, um, that terminology, that, that risk aware. So it's, you know, you as the individual, you should be educated and informed about the, the potential risks versus the potential benefits. And you make the decision for yourself. 
Exactly. Exactly. So, all right, I'm going back to, you know, what fantasy fantasy should be acted on and kind of going into more psychology. And, you know, if you're someone that could do dangerous things, because Ken and I, like he said, we're involved in a lot of weird things. And one of the other things we had both done um, as a career was we gave tours and lectures about serial killers. And one of the theories that I've heard people say as if, you know, and I'm just using this as throwing out as an example, you know, well, if John Wayne Gacy were, you know, lived in a world where he could be more open about his sexuality or some of his fantasies, and he could act them out in a more controlled, consensual manner, maybe he wouldn't have become a serial killer. So what are your thoughts on those, you know, quote, theories is holding back and suppressing our sexual fantasies are they driving some people down the road of actually being dangerous or being criminals or being non-consensually violent or do those things not really correlate and it's more complicated so we know that suppressing usually isn't the right answer because it leads to that obsessive preoccupation when you're trying to uh, intentionally not think about certain thoughts. So that usually is not the most healthy or productive way to go. Now, this raises the question of, well, what should you do instead? And when you're talking about sexual fantasies where, you know, it would be non-consensual, it would be illegal for the individual to act it out, should they find some other way of expressing that desire? And this is where we can start getting into the discussion of child sex dolls, which, you know, there's been a lot that's been said and written about that in the media recently, where they've said, well, if you give pedophiles these child sex dolls, then maybe they can act on their sexual urges. And then that would reduce the risk of them uh, committing a, a, a sex crime with, with the child later on. Um, it, it's a, interesting question, but unfortunately, it's one of those areas where we have absolutely no data. We don't know what would happen. Uh, and, and you've got some psychologists who say, you know, yes, this is a good idea. And others who say, no, that's just going to, to make them want to act on it even more and increase their odds of committing a sex crime. So the reality is we just don't have the data yet. It hasn't been studied. I wish I had an answer for you, but we, we don't know yet. Yeah, it's it. That's absolutely fascinating to me. Just the the psychological what if and, you know, what are those those little things, you know, like the butterfly effect? What are those little things in our lives that, you know, had we done something differently would really change the trajectory of who we are? Or, you know, if we turn out to be horrible people that are, you know, front front page headlines or not, or just like kinky in our spare time and we have a little dungeon room, you know? Yep. So we'll never know. So Yeah, and you know, we talked about difficulties in getting funding for sex research. Well, if you want to be the person who studies oh, child sex dolls, God. good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's you gotta know, be a I, hard I've, sell. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some some people attempt it to, you know, talk to, to people who are pedophiles and, you know, to figure out what makes you tick so we can learn to prevent future, you know, potential and, and nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it. So, all right. What if we've read your book? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the half of a, a theoretical couple who we've both read your book and we both are feeling good with like, all right, I'm not so weird. I get where my fantasies come from and partner who has the fantasies that I formerly thought were like whacked out and just weird. And I, there must be something wrong with you. Now I get it. But guess what? Maybe you're really into cross-dressing and that's your thing. 
And I am not, and I will not play that way with you. So what happens if you find out you're completely incompatible in your fantasies with your partner? What do you do? Now, the good news is that, you know, even if you and your partner are not a match on one fantasy, odds are you're going to have other fantasies where you are a match. What I found is that most people have a lot of different sexual fantasies. So I would say start by exploring some other areas where there are common ground and see where you are a match and and try to develop and build a healthy sex life based on those interests. Now, it's possible that there may be cases where you know, your biggest fantasy is cross-dressing and your partner's biggest fantasy is has nothing to do with cross-dressing and would never involve that. If there's a big discrepancy, then you need to find another way to, to manage that. And different people might find different ways to manage that. For example, some people might engage in a consensually non-monogamous relationship where they have different partners with whom they express different sexual interests. Uh, for example, I've read in some research on BDSM that, uh, you know, some people will have a primary partner with whom they don't engage in any BDSM activities, but, uh, you know, a friend with benefits or another partner with whom they do. And that's a way that they find to, to manage those desires when they're discrepant with one partner. So it's really all about finding a, a, a way to manage the situation that works for you. Mm-hmm. Now, one last question, at least I have, I don't know, Ken, if you have a couple more is, You hear a lot of people saying that or assuming that if somebody has a fantasy, it's due to some, you know, trauma or especially if it's like a BDSM sort, you know, let's say you like to be humiliated, for example, you know, maybe it's due to some trauma because you got teased in the locker room in middle school and now you're, you're living that out and working it out therapeutically and that all of our fantasies can be traced back to something that we're trying to, you know, work out. Is there any truth to that? So that's one of the cases where, you know, there certainly is a kernel of truth to the idea. And I see this in my data where there is a connection between specifically experiences with sexual victimization and then the content of the fantasies that they report having as adults later on. So, um, you know, there are some connections there between trauma and sexual fantasies, but they're not always predictable. They don't go in the same direction for everyone because different people find different ways to cope with traumas that they've experienced and endured. For example, some people who've experienced the trauma might fantasize about totally emotionless sex where they're stripping all of the emotion out of it because that makes it feel safer for them. Whereas other people might fantasize about, um, they might fantasize about very emotional sex where they feel very validated, desired, and wanted. And that is what it takes to make them feel safe and and comfortable. So trauma can express itself in these different ways. But I think it's important to highlight that you know, most of our fantasies are not a product of some trauma or, or victimization experience that we've had. Yes, there are connections there for some people, but not for everyone. And we need to be careful not to, you know, overanalyze fantasies and always, you know, try and point back to some previous trauma that we've endured. Sometimes they're just hot. <laughs> and yes. that's it. Yeah. Yes. And I think the, you know, Freud saying about sometimes a cigar is just a cigar is, uh, you know, very appropriate when we're talking about sexual fantasies. Sometimes they don't have deeper meaning to them. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. Okay. 
right. All right. So I have a last question for you. What were the two most surprising bits of data that you got from the research that you did not include in the book? <laughs> uh, hmm. Good question. Ooh, we got some insider exclusive here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot. Um, and uh, so I've actually, I've recently been going around the country and I've been giving talks to sex educators, therapists, and clinicians um, for many, many hours about the book. And I've gone into detail about some of the extra sort of bonus findings uh, that I have because this is a massive data set. So one of the things I look at in, in these talks that I give is the way that we see ourselves in our sexual fantasies and how that differs for people based on their gender and sexual orientation. And you see that men and women and people of different sexualities change themselves in different ways in their fantasies. The two groups of people who change themselves the most are people who are gay identified men and those who identify as gender non-binary. They have the highest rates of changing their bodies, their genitals, their personalities in their sexual fantasies compared to all of the other groups. Um, when you start looking at, you know, some of the other specific group comparisons, you see, for example, that uh, cisgender uh, heterosexual men and women change themselves in different ways with, uh, the women focusing more on changing their bodies and, and the men focusing more on changing their genitals. So I think it's really interesting to look at the way we see ourselves in our fantasies and what that means, what it says about us, what it says in our culture about the messages we're giving men and women about sex. So that's one of the things that I focus on a lot in the talks that I do. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and it, you know, you're right. I do picture myself differently. And, and recently, I would say in the last few years, I've been visualizing myself as a man. And I don't think it has, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with like, oh, I'm questioning my gender and da, da, da. I think it's just mm -hmm. variety. Like, huh, what would that be like? This is a cool new thing, you know? <laughs> um, so I encourage listeners out there to, yeah, if you haven't really thought about visualizing yourself in a different scenario, different body, that's, it's kind of fun when I started like purposely trying to do that. Yeah. And it, it, it might be an age related thing. And, and this will address Ken's question because he asked me for two things. So the other oh, cool. one is that I dove into more detail in terms of how our fantasies change with age. And one of the other things I found was that as people got older, the, the content of their fantasies changed, but it wasn't in this, you know, sort of straight linear fashion, meaning like, uh, you know, as you get older, your fantasies change in this way forever is, you know, you keep getting older and older and older. Or rather, you see this curvilinear relationship, meaning it's sort of an inverted U shape if you plotted it on a graph. So specifically, when you looked at fantasies about group sex and you look at fantasies about non-monogamy and, and just more adventuresome and novelty-based fantasies, you see that they increase up until about age 40. They stay high through the mid-50s and then they start to drop off after that. So you see this, this interesting change in our fantasies over the course of the lifespan. And I think when we're in our forties and fifties, uh, you know, we just have this heightened need for novelty and excitement for whatever reason. And that's playing out in our fantasies. Interesting. Oh, and that's where we are. Ken just turned 50. I'm 47. So, Ooh, I get to see how we change. <laughs> I'm <Yep>. very excited. <laughs> okay. Well, I have one that reminds me of one last question. And then, and then seriously, this is it. I swear. Um, I've always wondered <laughs> I've, cause I'm geeking out now. I'm totally geeking out. I have always wondered if 
because people like Ken and I, we are, you know, sex positive, we're sexuality educators, we're very open, we're very comfortable with what we do. We've done all the things like, it's not like I have a fantasy, it'll never come true. If it's like, I have a fantasy, we're like, hey, call our friends and let's make that happen. Get out the (laughs) clown outfits, you know. So we've we're we've done more i guess than the average person and we've explored more and we haven't repressed as much so have you found that people who are more sexually adventurous maybe have a different i don't know fantasy lifespan than people who are more repressed it it could be yeah and it, it might be a product of your unique individual personalities i see for example that people who have very active imaginations people who are very open to new experiences people who are high in what's called sexual sensation seeking where they just have this preference for you know more thrilling sexual activities those people fantasize more about everything you can possibly think of. Uh, and so over the course of their lives, they're just going to have this incredibly diverse fantasy repertoire compared to people who are lower on those traits. So it might just be, you know, this unique product of, of who you are. Cool. I am like so happy we got to talk to you. I love this book. I love you. Not in a weird way, but like your research is just <laughs> fascinating. Like Ken said, we retweet and repost your stuff all the time. So listeners, if you are not familiar with Dr. Justin Miller, not only pick up this book, but follow along on social media, because there's there's going to be so much great information for you to absorb continually. Um, and in the show notes at americansexpodcast.com, uh, we're going to have your your Twitter, your Facebook, you know, all the places we can find you. Um, but if there's a quick takeaway, if someone's like, oh, I'm going to forget to go to the show notes and there's one or two places they really need to go to, Dr. Leigh Miller, where would those places be to find out more about you and your work? Sure. My website is Sex and Psychology, and you can get to it at sexandpsychology.com. And that's where I blog about the latest sex research a few times a week. Uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at Justin Leigh Miller. Awesome. Thank you. Actually, don't so follow much. him on Twitter because we have we need your attention for our repos. <laughs> so get his information through us. <laughs> we should we should pay you for like content because I think we like, should. Yeah, we really let's should just repost everything he posts because it's great. <laughs> and thank you for that. Um, well, thank you so much, and uh, American fuckers who are listening, we'll see you next week. Please go out and pick up this book and improve y- your understanding of yourself and your partners and your sex life. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.